Yeah, that's right. If we don't get it right, this one didn't count. Uh, the, um, that's a tough song. That is. That's a... You know, um, when I was a little kid and, 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 or a young guy, and, and we used to, um, every once in a while at, at the Winslow Church of Christ, we would have songs, and I remember this same company, I think, put out one called On the Jericho Road. And let me tell you, when every time a young person wanted to lead that song, everybody just cringed. We had, we had many a young song leader just, just up and die on the Jericho Road, and... Uh, <laughs> Thought we were going to have to enact the parable of the Good Samaritan because somebody had been beaten mercilessly, mercilessly on, the, on the Jericho Road. Uh, speaking of my younger days, it came up this morning what was the worst thing that I had ever done. And so I'm just going to, you know, and there were a few uh, cute references, but I'll, I'll tell you something I did that, that almost got me into a lot of trouble. I, um, it was 1991, and I was at the Edinburgh Castle in Scotland, and I was walking in with my video camera, and you know, back in those days, you know, we video things like this now with a little device. But you know, I had one of those action news team cameras. You remember the kind that that uh, are huge and is a video camera. And the thing was on, and the light is blinking. And I walked into the room where the crown jewels of Scotland are. Everything's going fine, and I'm just walking through this line when suddenly this rather large fellow in an official-looking uniform says, "Shut it off." You know, and that's and I, I, he was he was looking at me, and uh, he wanted that turned off. Now you do not videotape the crown jewels, and um, I don't know why it didn't make them fade, but I guess uh, it's just they're they're just very tricky about that particular set of jewelry there. So um, Karen was probably th- thinking that uh, what I'm getting something wrong. Oh, I was at the Tower of London. Oh. Okay, so I almost had my head chopped off. All right, the, uh, how about that? How about that? Um, the, uh, I remember it in Scotland. Maybe I did it in both places, but the, uh, you don't fool around with a nation's crown jewels. They don't like that. And uh, I almost got into some serious trouble over that. The only crown that Jesus Christ was given on earth was a crown of thorns. And it was meant as a cruel jest. It was meant as a way to mock his claim that he was king. But later on in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says that he was crowned with God's honor and glory. And one of the reasons that uh, I probably didn't have a big reaction about taking my live video camera into whatever museum display had these fine jewels is because compared to God's honor and glory, all those crowns of other nations are just golden hats. They're, they're, they're no more meaningful to God than a, than a strung-together cord of thorns. We want to begin today a series affirming that Jesus Christ is King. That He is Lord of Lords. And we say that. We, we declare it. We have banners up that say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what do we mean by that? What does it mean? One of the first things I want you to know is that in a very real way, Jesus Christ is monarch. That means He is the absolute ruler over this world and over this universe. We can say that He is the King of a spiritual kingdom, and that would be true. But understand, just because we say it's a spiritual kingdom does not mean that it is in any way 
different or separate from the secular governments and the secular kingdoms in this world. In fact, if anything, it means that it overlaps and it supersedes all other governments in this world. And so we proclaim that he is king, but do we live it? Do we understand it? That's what I want us to examine and explore over the next few weeks because I want us to own in a very real way that Jesus Christ is ruler over this world and over this universe. And there is an absolute monarchy that you and I live under. We begin with, we begin with the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you hear this and you think of Rocky. No, it's not Apollo Creed. It's the Apostles' Creed. And for those of you who have no idea, we'll talk about what that means later. But uh, you're missing a good movie. The Apostles' Creed is an attempt. It's one of the earliest attempts to formulate what people believe. To take all of the statements of Scripture, all of the things that are preached, and to sum it up into what are the, what are the key points that the Apostles are saying. It's sort of like 4th century bullet points or talking points. But you put these things together. In a, in a formula, into a concise formula, and you say what you believe. And though you won't find the Apostles' Creed in the Bible, the things in it are not necessarily unbiblical. And this, this creed is one of the earliest, and it first appears around the year 390. But we know that it probably existed long before that. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended from heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. It's a simple statement. And and by the way, Holy Catholic Church is in lowercase letters because in this context, it really refers to holy being set apart and Catholic simply meaning universal, not talking about a particular uh, denomination of Christianity. The, uh, here you see then an attempt to summarize what people who hold on to the Christian faith and follow Jesus believe. But although we, we don't subscribe to this in any official way, it may reflect some of our attempts to reduce down and summarize the gospel or the message of Scripture into five or six points, into a sermon, into a pamphlet. I mean, here you just have an early attempt at that. So we'll begin with this one. And maybe the best way to take a look at this for for our purposes is to look at it backwards. It, It starts out with some message about the resurrection and life everlasting. I believe. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in life everlasting. And that's good. Whoever helped formulate this recognized that belief in the resurrection and belief in everlasting life is critical to following Jesus. That without this truth, you're just following a good teacher. But Jesus is certainly more than that. This is, of course, the proclamation that is usually thought about 
on Resurrection Sunday and on Easter Sunday, but it's the message that gives meaning to our faith every day. There's also in that creed the notion of judgment. Something yet has to happen with the one who has all authority, who will set all things right. Now, we often take this to mean rewards and punishments. And though the context of judgment has to do with something is yet to happen, there's the fulfillment of Jesus' rule and authority, that it's going to be recognized and acknowledged in every way, and there will be no more resistance to his royal reign. This idea that Jesus is coming again and that there will be judgment, I believe that that idea is fading out. Perhaps in this generation, perhaps it has been for the last 100 years or more. And maybe the reason for that is that this idea has been reduced down, away from the idea of justice and, and, the, and the reign of Christ, and it has been reduced down to a, a kind of a, a shock and awe terror, a gotcha moment, where Jesus is something, more of a, something like a, a cosmic hall monitor who catches us at just the wrong time, and then all is doomed. But at least in this statement of belief, there is this idea that there is something yet to come. Moving backwards, we noticed another important statement that maybe we didn't catch at first. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, in his simple formulation, of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is exalted at the right hand of God. When you hear the words, He ascended, what do you think of? I think typically we think of Jesus floating up into the sky. If you've ever been to the Passion Play in Eureka Springs, then I'm not, sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but it ends with the actor playing Jesus being lifted up into the air on a wire and a harness. And of course, he doesn't go straight up because he's on kind of a reverse zip line and he has to kind of back out and then he goes into the trees and they all wiggle and wobble and sometimes one of them whacks him in the head and, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all very, you know, nice and neat, but yet it's still, it's a play, it's a, it's a put together. And we get this idea that ascended means he's floating up into the sky, but ascended means much more than that. Maybe you've heard of someone ascending to the throne, of a person's ascent to royal power. When you put the words ascension and throne together, the idea changes, does it not? And yet we're not used to thinking of that kind of ascension because it's not a part of our routine view of power. And yet when the creed says he ascended... When the Gospels say He ascended, they're pointing to the fact that He ascends to royal authority. He is elevated. He is raised up. One of the reasons that Jesus is mocked at the crucifixion. I mean, what what would cause these, these, these Roman soldiers to put a crown of thorns on His head and a purple robe and then lift Him up? They, have, they are making a mockery of His claim to be king. And crucifixion is a cruel way of mocking someone's ascension. If someone wants to be lifted up, says the Roman Empire, we'll lift them up. 
but we'll do it in a way that will insult, humiliate, and shame them, not just kill their body. They could have executed people in any way, but they reserved crucifixion for those who had to be made an example. We should think more about the ascension of Jesus as having to do with Him being Lord of heaven and earth and not just going up into heaven. Speaking of which, the next point in the Apostles' Creed is that, going backwards at least, He descended into hell. Now that's a tricky one. And um, Logan, if you could skip part of the song, I'm skipping this one and we'll move on. And so we'll just say, He's risen. This is also affirmed in the creed. He is risen. And and it comes at the end of that that core of the gospel, what what we also read in 1 Corinthians 15. But it's also written down in the gospels. That he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he was risen. He was raised on the third day. And this isn't some kind of special magic trick that Jesus does. Where he knows that he can be crucified because he knows he can also resurrect himself. He is trusting in God to bring about the resurrection. Because when he is dead, he's dead. It's God who affects the resurrection. We know that he is risen and we mean from the dead. But he's also risen to authority. He is also exalted. Is this just a happy ending To what starts as a cruel gospel, or is there more? Take a look at the next sentence back in the creed and notice something. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Between the mention of Mary and Pontius Pilate, There's nothing more than a semicolon. But you know that historically there's much more of a gap between his birth and his suffering under Pontius Pilate. N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King, has pointed out that there's a lot in this gap that we have probably overlooked. Four months ago, most of the world remembered the birth of the Christ, birth of Christ. They remembered the birth of Jesus. We were mindful of His conception by the Holy Spirit, of His birth to a virgin, to Mary. But notice what comes next in the list. We go straight from Christmas to Easter. And in our calendar, there's four months between that, but in the life of Jesus, there's more than 30 years. What about all of those parables? What about all that teaching? What about the miracles? Are they just filler? Why why don't they show up in the creed? Why aren't they there in a formulation of faith? Is there anything to it? Does it mean something? I think I agree with N.T. Wright that that in the creed, it's not not a criticism of it, but you've got something there. And and, in, in my own thinking, it's like the dash on a tombstone. You can go to someone's grave and you can look on the tombstone and you can see two dates. But in that dash, so much is contained that unless you know the stories, unless you know the person, no one can fully fill in that dash. You and I need to get to know the one who fills in the empty gap between 
born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why don't our ancient formulas of faith name that? How did that get left out? Why don't our modern formulas of faith mention that? Why is it that that even in our teaching, even in the way that we worship, we sometimes leave off everything between the birth and the cross? Sometimes we just leave off the birth. Sometimes we go to the cross and we skip the tomb. Sometimes all we end up with is nothing more than an empty cross. And that's a good symbol. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying that we should throw out the symbol of the cross. Not at all. I think we need to focus on it. But if we focus on the cross to the neglect of everything else in the life of Jesus, then the cross will not make that much sense. It'll become nothing more than an unfair substitution in the game of life. And it might even become something that we can fix our guilt on so that when we gather together or when we teach one another, we have a moment of guilty catharsis. We pour out our guilt. But we don't know what it means to be a disciple. The cross was not empty when Jesus Christ was crucified. And maybe it's offensive sometimes to show a man hanging in pain, nailed to the cross. And that would have been the attempt of the Roman government to make it offensive. And it actually is the scandal that gives the gospel its power. Because God transforms that offensive, scandalous moment. And He does it with Jesus fully on the cross by responding with an empty tomb. The emptiness of the tomb is not just symbolic. The emptiness of the tomb, now, that means something. The emptiness of the tomb points out to us that there's much more going on here than just a guilt offering or a substitution. The emptiness of the tomb proclaims that Christ has overcome death, That God has worked through him to change the world, but the emptiness of the tomb says more. And what I want us to do is, just as John tells the story, on the morning of the resurrection, where Peter and John go into the tomb, and they notice that things are out of place. They notice the grave clothes laid aside. And their first reaction is, this isn't what we expected. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And yet for John, it eventually leads him to belief. And it will do the same for Peter as well. The disciples expected to find a body or signs of a grave robbery. But when we go to the empty tomb, what do we expect to find? Maybe we know the story so well that we expect to say, well, there's an empty tomb, that's good news, Jesus is risen from the dead, He's okay, so I'm okay, let's move on. But I tell you, if you stop in the emptiness of the tomb, you will soon learn that that tomb is empty because God needs someone to be the king of this world. Jesus was put back into action because he was exalted. There needs to be authority over this world. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that in our formulations of faith, we've got the past taken care of. 
He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He was put into the tomb, but now the tomb is empty. We've got the past. He will come again. He will judge all things rightly, the living and the dead. We've got the future. But what about the present? What do we say about right here and now? Make no mistake. Scripture isn't silent on this issue. Jesus had much to say about it when he spoke about his kingdom. But when we empty the present of his presence, then we're not letting him rule as king, and we are making ourselves kings of this present moment right now. When the message is, there is one monarch And there is one, only one, risen from the dead, exalted, and fit to rule. So does it matter? Does it matter that we have a king? That in a very real way we live in an absolute monarchy, not over simply a geographical territory, but over all of life, over all of death? Does it matter that we acknowledge that monarchy now? Isn't it enough that we understand the past and the present, and we just do our best to fill in the gap? Well, you tell me if it matters. When every day you and I are bombarded with the significance of this present age. And we are frightened and we are terrified. And sometimes people will want to make sure that we're terrified. That the world could go wrong in a moment. With the push of a button. If the wrong people get the bomb. If treaties go bad. If the wrong leaders in politics are in power. Does it matter that there is one in charge? Will you tell me? When there is turmoil on the streets of many nations, and that means that that turmoil may may create problems for us in the streets of this nation. When, When terror is all around us, and we're bombarded with those who do not see life or do not see the Lord the same way we do. And maybe the only feeling that we can ever generate is We just need to get rid of all of them. We need to use the bombs that we have. We need to clear the earth. We need a scorched earth. Well, that's all good and well, but what do you do when the problem and the terror and the anger and the political turmoil is in our own streets? What do you do then? And I'm not asking you to decide how you feel about any of the issues, whether it's protests that are going on in Indiana, which very well could have come to our state, we saw this week, or whether it's riots and whether it's fear and and violence going on in the streets of a state just to the north of us, or in any city at any time. By the way, all of this turmoil, as horrible as it is, I don't know that it's new. Over a century ago, we had something called a civil war. That was terrible. We're still feeling the effects of it today. But maybe the constant pressure of these things going on in our world make us so anxious and maybe we're starting to feel it and we all feel like we're in a pressure cooker in this world and something's bound to pop. As we pointed out over the last seven weeks, we find ourselves in a situation similar to that which was said to the people of Israel in the time of the judges. That in those days there was no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And again, I care not at all right now for this moment, for the purpose of this talk, where you find yourself politically or socially or any of that. I'm just asking you, can you not agree with me that there's so much tension that it does seem like everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes? 
Even we do sometimes. And I think that statement could be said of us in our world today, but not all of it. Just that last part. You could say that we live in a world where it's hard to identify what's right and people do what's right in their own eyes. But when you go to the emptiness of the tomb and when you understand what it means for this present moment right now, there is no way at all you and I can say that we do not have a king because we do. This statement, as far as I know, you won't find it in any creed because I wrote it. But I think it's something that we need to be able to affirm. That we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, but we also believe that Jesus Christ ascended to the throne of heaven and all the earth. And He rules as the monarch of all creation forever and ever. But don't just believe it, live it. And here's the challenge that we have. The challenge that we have is to live in such a way that we really do have a king. And that might be hard for a people who don't know what it means to have a king. That might be hard for people who do know what it means to have a king. Because kings are usually people who dress up in fine robes and have a a few more privileges and maybe wear golden hats. But we're talking about authority. That's why the word monarch might mean more for us. You and I serve a risen king, a monarch. And in a very real way, he rules over every aspect of creation. Our invitation this morning is that you would learn what it means to live under that rule. Because it ultimately has to do with peace and with justice. It has to do with life everlasting. As we stand and sing this next song, we're going to affirm that. And I would invite anyone, I mean, look at the song that we're going to sing. We're going to affirm that Jesus' name is above all names. That doesn't mean he's the first on the list. It means that the authority of his name, like your name on a signature, that that name outranks, overrules, stands above every other name and authority, that there is not one that is higher. And so if you and I can affirm that, then let this be the first step we take to living under that rule of Jesus Christ. If we can encourage you in any way today, there will be shepherds down front here who want to pray with you. There will be shepherds in room 100. Let's stand and affirm that we believe Jesus' name is above all names.